0: You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hi everyone, I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago welcome to The Mess. At Messy Jesus Business, we explore how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. And now on to our guest. In 1999, Bridget Alexander got on a bike and joined 17 youth overcoming homelessness and social injustice on a 2,300-mile bike trip across America. The goal? To prove to the world what she already knew. When you focus on the strengths of kids from poverty, they dazzle. The trip tested the ideals of the newly hatched nonprofit, Waking the Village, and confirmed the belief that youth achieve big things when surrounded by relentless support, meaningful opportunities, and adults who look upon them daily with belief. Bridget is one of the founders and directors of Waking the Village. Waking the Village develops leaders and widens futures as youth live in Tubman House, a community for young parents, and Audrey's Emporium of New Tomorrows, a community for LGBTQ youth. Waking the Village also leads the Creation District, an incubator for creation, activism, and dream making for youth overcoming homelessness, as well as Art Beast Child Development Center and Muck and Wonder Farm School, which are licensed preschools that bring together children from privilege and from economic injustice. Prior to launching Waking the Village in Sacramento, Bridget taught high school, working with youth impacted by poverty and social injustice. In this episode of Messy Jesus Business, Bridget and I talk about what it would take to end homelessness and how each of us can get involved. We discuss what it takes to build a nonprofit centered on building community and why it's better to enable interdependency instead of self-sufficiency. We consider how living a life of faith and discipleship can mean paying attention to the current social movements led by folks on the margins and following their lead. And then we get into the mess of advocating for justice and living in community. Enjoy. Hi, Bridget. Welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Hi, Julia. Thanks for having me. Yay. I'm uh, so glad to have you uh, because, as you know, <laughs> I've been a fan of Waking the Village and really the holistic way that you're working to companion people who are marginalized and on the edges of society in different ways. Yeah. Um, well, for as long as I've known about it (laughs) since, yeah, early 2000s, and and then was a Jesuit volunteer at Waking Village 2004-2005, and have been privileged to be on the board of directors since 2006. So if I remember correctly, though, you were an English major in college. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, and you started off in education, but now you are the director of Waking the Village, this wonderful nonprofit that is serving, I don't even know, dozens, hundreds of youth <laughs> and children in, in Sacramento. Um, so how did this happen? And how did you end up becoming the co-founder of Waking the Village?
1: All right. So yeah, that's a good question. So yeah, um, first off, I, I just have to acknowledge that you know, there's only a few people that have been around and know when they think of Waking the Village, think way back to our early days and have watched this arc of growth. You know, to people coming into our agency now, this is just what we are, but it's fun. There's just a few people that get like how, what this climb has been and and all the sacrifice it's taken and hard work and belief. And so you're one of those folks. There's probably only a handful of us. So thank you. And for the, the commitment you've made to our agency back in 2004 and have just renewed year after year after year is is testament. Honestly, it's those folks that have gotten us here, you know, the the long haulers, so. (laughs) But let's see. yes, you're right. I was a a creative writing major in college actually, and was an English teacher. I I had decided to become an English teacher after studying the Cuban revolution and seeing the impact of literacy campaigns on social justice movements. And I I had gotten really inspired by that. Hmm. And um, the transformative power of education empowering, you know, abilities of it. And so I went into the teaching field and I got a job working with, uh, at a school for all the youth that had been thrown out of the comprehensive high school. So it was a tiny school of 150 youth and amazing teachers who were creative, social justice minded and innovative teaching. And so I was there four years. And in those four years, I was kind of allowed to do what I want. Like I was teaching of studies classes. I was teaching, oh, I was teaching a social movement class. I, mm-hmm. We had one class where we designed protests. I mean, it was, I was able to bring the curriculum and the topic, English and math to life in, in creative ways. And then after four years, the district came in and basically wanted us to repeat what had failed at the comprehensive high school. And, and I, when I left, it was largely due to refusing to do that. Mm-hmm. However, in that same four years, I had lost many of my students. They had they had died. Some in the hands of police violence. Um, they'd been swept into mass incarceration systems. They had experienced incredible amounts of police harassment. Many were struggling with poverty. So we'd get them across the finish line of diplomas, but then it wouldn't be much of a transformation. They were still battling the same systems simultaneously. I had met the person I'm married to now, Blythe. And she worked at Mustard Seed, a school for children experiencing homelessness, part of Loaves and Fishes down here. And she was also tiring of seeing the same children year after year after year. And we both, though we admire tremendously folks that can do the work of meeting immediate survival needs, both of us had a deep desire to be involved with something more transformative and that kind of broke those cycles and envisioned a community for for youth where they would live and we would work together side by side each day and got the vision and so we had the vision that we knew we wanted for Waking the Village. Getting funded to do it was another thing entirely Um, and we we, as we began to educate ourselves we realized how entirely difficult it was to to create something to go from idea to reality and so we began that work Um, we decided to basically do a stunt. We wanted to, we rode our bikes across America. Um, it was the youth from Mustard Seed. It was the youth from my high school. It was youth, other youth we'd been working with and met in the community. The youth and and us and leaders we helped prepare rode to Florida from from California. And in that summer, we were also test driving this kind of idea we had of transformative experiences and that it would be done by doing things side by side, day in, day out, hitting big goals, focusing on our strengths. And living in the world as like a leader and an asset, because so often we know the youth we are working with, we're living in the world through and being viewed as liabilities to their society. They were being viewed as, um, you know, in the worst, ugliest scenarios as almost like leeches on, on the rest of us. And in the best case scenarios, by kind of do-gooders as as pitiable, you know? And so we weren't interested in any of that. So the bike trip was actually because we had no back biking background <laughs> and no desire we, we were not passionate bikers we wanted to do something that would be a struggle for all of us and that would be a reach for all of us and to do that together and so in the summer of 99 we rode our bikes across america with all the youth how many it youth? Amaz- it was amazing yeah how many youth was that um 17 youth and um we recruited I'm trying to think probably around 10 leader you know co- they're college students my mm-hmm. sister um, you know, friends that we recruited and got ready. Most of them had not done much youth work. Oh, a couple like kind of experienced bikers who could fix bikes well. We had a retiree who followed us in his RV and carried our sleeping bags from town to town. And so, yeah, it was a really great experience. We learned about developing leadership and people. We learned to include youth and, and the volunteers that, that were supporting them as well along with us. We learned about, we learned a lot. We learned about the power of transformation and we learned what it was going to feel like to do something day in, day out, every single day, the kind of relentlessness of it and how hard that can be. And so we came back and literally for three years just tried everything to get the nonprofit on its feet. And I always tell everybody who asks me how to start a nonprofit, the only trick is just be completely determined. It Honestly, nobody believes in us anymore. (laughs) Not our parents um not our best friends nobody believed in us after all the years of trying everybody was like you guys have just got to get practical and and you know like we were still teaching but it wasn't it was three four it was four hard years of trying before we finally got funded and it was just throwing everything at the wall talking about it to everybody and finally we got funded and that then allowed us to begin the process
0: of sending down our roots so Wow. That is how I came to be co-founder of Waking the Village. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. And so you really had this vision at the start that it would become a community of people living alongside each other, working together for transformation. And so now, and that's, I think totally you've, you've made it. <laughs> that's what it's become. <laughs> so, and let, let's just kind of like lay the landsca- landscape of what Waking the Village is now. So we started with Tubman House named after Harriet Tubman
1: named after Harriet Tubman because it's it's kind of centered on the belief that those that have been through best know how to guide others out. And it was centered on like developing leadership in our youth, finding their strengths, focusing on those strengths, shining light on those strengths. So Tubman House started, it was just a a house and and, um, the youth, we brought in four youth and our, me and Blythe, and um, we started it. Hired a house director and we were there every day, all day, pretty immediately we were able to expand to eight. And for a lot of years, from 2003 to about 2009, that was what we were. We uh, we were Tubman House. We had two sites. That's where you were. And each day we'd we'd show up. And this model is still the model we use to this day. We have one person that lives on site in community with the youth. Each house has like four to six families living in it. And by families, that might be um, a single mom and her child. It might be a couple and a child. The, the, The young adults will always be 18 to 24 children tend to be uh, under three, but we have older sometimes. And in the evenings, the house director is really focused on rhythms and meals and and healthy home kind of things. And during the day, um, our day squad is very focused on, and these are our youth development directors. They have very small caseloads. They usually work with four youth at a time. And we are all, we come in every day. We're there at nine o'clock. We have morning meeting. We might be talking about the news. We might be talking about uh, something interesting we heard about parenting. We might be talking about new efforts in the queer rights movement. You just never know. We might be building team building. You just never know what we'll be up to. Morning meeting happens in the house every day. We also all set our intents for the day, and then between eight thirty and four thirty, everybody's chasing goals. And so for some youth, that might be going to college. For another, it might be looking for a job. For another, it might be really working on their wellness for another might be connecting to housing resources. And we're gonna be there alongside them for this all. So just on the bike ride, nobody's going up the hill alone. You know, we're right there. We're going alongside. We may have expertise, we may not. They may have expertise, they may not, but we're doing it together. You know, the COVID year was just a reminder of how hard it can be to get systems to work and move. However, our youth, I think in some ways had an advantage on the rest of the world and that they're used to systems not being very kind to them and and very uh, agile and swift moving. And so things that were a system change got slow for everybody. Our youth were, we're used to this. We know, we know how to persevere. In 2009, we started something called Art Beast, which was a cottage industry. It was a art space for children under seven. And you could drop in and create big old Victorian that's been converted to essentially like wild art studio with play spaces. Our youth would work there. And then the money we would generate there would flow over to our homeless programs. It also became a powerful way to build community connections, to expand our donor base. So we were kind of imagined this little nonprofit doing great work that literally nobody really knew anything about, except our friends and families and that, that kind of bubble in a big city of, you know, a million and a half, two million people. It's easy to get shadowed here by the longtime nonprofits. And that was what was happening to us. So Beast kind of began to crack open that bubble. In 2012, it actually saved us because we lost a key grant for about six months due to a government thing. That community really rallied and saved us. In 2015, our JV, our Jesuit Volunteer Corps volunteer, Grace, came for a year. And at the end of it, when we offered her a job, said, well, I'm really interested in creating a space for youth that uses the arts to develop leadership and wellness. And we said, talk more about that. Let's do this. And um, we launched the Creation District Creation District was a little room in a building. It's now a 6,000 square foot art space. Has other partners there with us, and youth can come any day between about nine to five, nine to four, and they can go into our open studio. They can create uh, pots on a pottery wheel. They can paint. They can go. We have two art workshops a day. So, like for example, we might have a local stand-up comedian who's of some prominence teaching them how to use stand-up comedy as a way to tell your life story and find like joy and humor within some of the hardship. And then they actually go out to open mics and perform. We had a uh, uh, one that used spoken word. It was called stay here with me. And it was for youth struggling with suicide and suicide ideation. And they were using spoken word to kind of find their life force again. We also have a recording, a music label that where youth come in and create songs and record them with professional musicians on professional equipment. And then they go and perform in our local clubs. We sign them to our label. They get all the money they make off that label. and we. you know, set up their whole system. And so it's kind of a, a place that youth are attracted to. So instead of like everybody come to a budgeting workshop, <laughs> instead it's, it's, it's everybody come to this really cool uh, recording studio and we'll sign you on to our record label. And hey, let's, 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 let's crunch some numbers about how much money this can make and what it might look like and how, you know, we're casting everything, sweetening the flavor through the use of the arts. And it's, been, it's become a huge magnet for developing youth leadership we have a strong social justice focus there every week our youth our youth council meets and so youth experiencing homelessness gather every single week they're now a, a part of our continuum of care and they're driving system change in Sacramento and a big part of the, the growth in our our things here in 2016 Audrey's Emporium of New Tomorrows named after Audrey Lord was launched it's a it's basically exact same model of tubman only serving LGBT youth they might be single they might be couples they might be parenting Um, They all identify as LGBT and um, they live in community and it's our we blend Tubman and and Audrey spend a lot of time together every day. So we don't hold these communities apart. We gather together and it's a beautiful thing. In 2017, trying not to forget programs, we launched Prevention and Intervention. So that's a new program. We came into it with four other local providers and we're basically moving upstream. We want to see youth on day one of homelessness and help them get quickly inside and get services. That same year, we also launched um, youth employment programs. So we um, have youth employment programs that are looking specifically at youth experiencing homelessness. We also that year expanded our TLP for our transitional housing for parenting youth. We also started the P3 pilot, which was a way to get housing choice vouchers, which are extremely hard to get in Sacramento, usually wait like five, six, seven years, into the hands of youth exiting our transitional programs. And so we began having success building key partnerships so that when youth left our transitional, they'd be able to get a housing subsidy that would ensure that they could afford their apartments because our our rents here are skyrocketing. We now have three licensed preschools. So during the day, the kids are in our licensed preschools um, receiving care. And we have one of those preschools can take subsidies for any low income family. We also some families pay market rate and we use that to generate funding to sustain our homeless programs and Finally, in February, we launched The Village, which is kind of the final piece in our housing pipeline. It was the hardest to get to, and it's a shelter for parenting youth. So in Sacramento, the youth shelters turn away youth that are parenting. because If have a child, they can't serve them. Um, so we're the first shelter that can actually say, yes, come in with your children and serve our young parents. Might be a couple, might be a single mom or dad. It's just a key part. So now we've got prevention, intervention, then shelter, then transitional, then the housing subsidies, employment programs, education support, child care, and the wellness programs. So
0: and that's arts. everything. It's everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I said, Waking the Village is holistic. It's inclusive. Yes. It's communal. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's yes. not just about like, welcome to the system. Let's get you out of, you know, let's run you through it. But yeah, it's, it's a whole person. And I know that you're incredibly relational and dedicated to your graduates. And it's just like, you're continuing to constantly accompany people, even if they move on in, into lives of self-sufficiency, you know, where they're sustainable and safe. And so, yeah, you, to be honest,
1: we, we even push against that word self-sufficiency. Oh, thank you. Probably. Healthy interdependence is what we're striving for. It, so for me, one of the biggest, most striking differences when I left education, where I was working with very poor youth, experiencing a lot of discrimination, many undocumented, and then came into homelessness. In theory, you know, they're ticking a lot of the same kind of systemic injustices. However, what I noticed about my youth experiencing homelessness is they just had no support. And that was the thing. The thing that actually was leading to homelessness wasn't so much the things that I had seen other youth experience, because I knew many youth endured those, it was that they didn't have any social connections. And so they didn't have a family network. They didn't have a good friend network. They didn't have, um, they weren't part of uh, anything that looked like a community, be it a church or a school or a dorm or anything that looked like community. And so that is a big part of what we take, why we take community so seriously and why our aftercare is so important because it's an authentic community. It's authentic relationships. When they go back out, we want them to know you can still call, you can still text. We're still, that wasn't pretend. It's not, we haven't punched out. And so we hear from our graduates. In fact, we're really proud that many work for us. So
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Lovely part of the program.
0: Yeah. And thank you for that distinction. I think my year of service on the ground there in Tumman House helped me to really reflect on how my, my own networks, my own community, my safe, you know, the safety net uh, as it's so-called is ultimately what prevented me from living a life on the streets on my own. And yes. it, it is true that the relationships that I had, it wasn't that I, you know, grew up super wealthy or anything. It's just, it's just that I had people that were willing to help me out when I couldn't pay my bills that, that could have caused me to end up on the streets earlier on in my life. Yeah, yeah, I believe
1: there's a, we always, I don't know if it's fear or what, but people oftentimes think youth experience of homelessness that, you know, it must be drugs, must be these terrible decisions they've made. And the sad truth is it's not that at all. It's simply when they had the same kind of challenges I had, be it a dumb mistake or be it like, oh man, I don't have enough money to make rent. The price they pay for that is so much higher than anything I ever had to pay, you know, mm-hmm. because I was connected, because I'm white, you know, for all the privileges I had, it it was key. So, and, and through the years, like even, I mean, you know, I still talk to folks that you worked with, you know, that's how kind of deep are those connections go and how long they last is, you know, it's not uncommon just last week, I was talking to one of the, you know, some of the folks you've worked with in your year
0: there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You're like the matron of this whole community now. Oh gosh, I don't know if I like that word. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> okay, so so really though, I mean, I think what we're we're uncovering here is, and and not surprisingly, is is that some of the myths that prevent people who are struggling with homelessness from really moving forward. There's a lot of ugly assumptions that people make and project upon people who are poor, and I'm I'm wondering what you think. Like the common Christian, um, you know, listeners to of the Messy Jesus business who are just kind of interested in in doing what's right. What 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 do we need to understand and 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 how can we better support youth and their children who are struggling with homelessness?
1: Great question. I think one of the biggest misperceptions is that they're visible. I think people think they're seeing youth experiencing homelessness, and I can promise you you're not. You might see one out of every 300. You're seeing the rare youth that's on the street um, that is struggling with maybe an intense addiction issue. The vast majority of youth experiencing homelessness are not visible. First off, they want to be invisible. They don't want to be seen or put in that box. They're oftentimes, you know, couch bouncing, sleeping, uh, trapped in a violent environment that they can't leave without becoming homeless. They're often doubled up, tripled up in places like that. So that's one of the reasons they're invisible they also, in our cities with the sweeps, they often are avoiding places where they might be seen. So, you know, I always tell people, broaden your definition of what you might even think of as homelessness. Lots of times, you know, it's the college kid who has nowhere to go when the dorms close. And, and people have never even realized this person is sleeping in their car for two or three weeks when the semester ends, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, In Sacramento, we we just found out that something like 20% of our college students are homeless when the schools close their dorms. It's a shocking figure. Um, And so I think we sometimes have really narrow views of it. And I also say that the other thing to really understand is how much of a role loneliness and disconnection plays. And so whenever people are like, um, what can I do to help? I'm always like, you know what we need? Well, we need money, (laughs) so that the people that do this really well can do it well. But the other big thing I would say, if everybody just look, we don't need saints, we could end homelessness, if we all disagreed, I'm going to look really closely in my school, in my church, in my neighborhood, in my temple, I'm going to look in, you know, in the in my workplace, and I'm going to pay attention to suffering and loneliness and and struggle. And I'm going to feel morally obligated to tend to that. Like if if Christians did that, even if just the Christians did that, <laughs> it would be earth shaking. Because you know Sacramento has a big homeless pro- problem. It's something like in the ten thousands. You know, it's like I think it hovers right now. Depending on the definition of homeless, it hovers between ten and twenty thousand in our city. However, we're a big city. That that is actually a fraction of one percent of our population. So as much as it sounds like a huge number, we can tackle a problem that's less than one percent of our population. Seems to me very possible. And so that myth of, oh, it's just so much, it's so big, it's so impossible, I always like to push back on that a little. You were there, you saw Julia, it wasn't huge mountains, it was simple things. Let's get folks connected, let's help them get a job, let's help them get past the racist employer and actually get the call back. Let's spruce up their resume so they get the call back. Let's help them deal with this ridiculous lag in the financial aid department. Oftentimes a lot of our work is just standing up the systems
0: Mm-hmm. The kind of
1: are, are cruel and rude to our youth. You know, it's like a lot of it is just basic advocacy, even in hospital rooms. Like, you know, when we go to the ER, our youth can be treated terribly. But when I stand next to them, all of a sudden, the way they get talked to improves dramatically. I, I to be honest, I had heard about this from my students for years and I, Kind of believed them, I'll say, but honestly, until I was sitting alongside and walking this, and I'm sure this was true for you too, I really did not realize the love. I didn't realize what it actually racism looks like until I was standing alongside folks every single day and what classism looks like. And you know, you really see it now, and I have a deep understanding of every day and how the relentlessness of it. I did not know that and I didn't understand that going in. So yeah. I think standing up for that in your workplaces is really important and in your schools and in your neighborhoods, like pushing back on cruel systems, pushing back on unkindness and befriending people who are struggling. It might be a lonely elder on your block. If you know there's a lonely elder on your block, go visit the lonely elder on your block. It's a small act that is is, you know, world changing. And I know that almost sounds trite. But if you're really, really doing it, if you really are, like all the time, I'm like, if if somebody Mm. had seen the youth I'm working with now when they were a 12-year-old in their biology class struggling, like if somebody had reached out then, we would have had so much trauma could have been spared. Mm. But instead, our systems and our neighbor, you know, our, our, our busyness, we just don't slow down and take care of things when they're small like that, and we wait. In fact, our whole homeless system is predicated right now priority goes to people with a year of homelessness and a disability. So in Sacramento, we don't even really you aren't even eligible for any housing until you've suffered long enough. And it's mm-hmm. a it's ridiculous. So yeah. that's the one thing I always say, if you're, if you're a Christian, look around. I promise you, you'll start spotting it when you pay attention. There's people even like somebody who can't afford to fix the brakes on their car. That escalates quickly into your car not working, so you can't get to childcare, so you can't get to work, so you lose your housing. Like these small, ridiculous things, you know. You know, starting a way in your community for people to get microloans to fix those kinds of that's like a game changer. That's a huge service. You know, helping people with transport issues when, like, let's say your school doesn't have an after-school program and everybody works till five thirty. You know, fix that gap, solve that gap for some single moms and single dads or anybody who has to be at work and they can't attend to that. There's just so many small acts that have huge impact. Yeah. That is one of the big things. The other big thing I'm always saying, though, is just please get involved in your local government. As someone who's been kicking and pushing against our government especially the last 10 years. It does, I mean, it's slow, it's frustrating, but it does slowly create change. Oftentimes I was just at a city council meeting on Tuesday. There's big decisions being made about adding homeless beds to our community. 24 people called in and and all 24 of those people are providers or people that work in this field. And that's just not how it should be. We need, of course I'm for it. We need to hear citizens. Even if you're too scared to like call in or go stand before them. Commenting on agenda items. I mean, even that act alone, or being the person who coordinates, like every I'm going to look every week at the city council agenda. I'm going to see if there's something there we should coordinate on. I'm going to make sure I turn out 10 of my buddies to at least comment in support or opposition on this. These, what instead happens is we just pile all these things on the same people. Mm-hmm. and we just can't get to it all so you know i'm i'm trying to represent a local government i'm trying to educate my politicians i'm trying to serve our youth i'm trying to it's it 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 becomes too much for the few but it's actually a very light load for the many churches are well positioned actually you've got your community right there like that could be a little group you know mm-hmm. be a cool thing
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah right and i i love i mean i think what you're highlighting is sort of like the simplicity of the ordinary <laughs> and but also like The power of the ordinary act. And yeah, like just befriending our neighbors and really being in relationship with people in the mess of the relationship and, and being there to support them through the hard times. The things that like when I was a young adult, my parents would help me out with. Um, yeah. how can I help out uh, other people who, who might not have that support system? I think the last time I was there in Sacramento and, and we were going around and I was getting to see the, the art centers and the, the child care centers and you know the 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 version of the Tubman House and the way that it was and things. We were, I remember having this conversation with you in the car, and you were telling me about sort of these really frustrating do-gooders who have like really good hearts, good intentions, but they're really just making these horrible assumptions about what you need need <laughs> yes. and then it's really complicating your work because they're just like I just I just gave like out all these things to your youth and you're like that's not what they need like why yes. are you doing that and so if you're actually in relationship with someone and it's a relationship of mutuality and companionship then you'll be in a, a disposition of listening right and actually accompanying them and responding to the needs as they arise well said help us all
1: that is the difference I mean I can't tell you how every week I get an email or a phone call from someone who has a plan and wants to come volunteer and it just you know it's really hard as someone you know I can't just say you know you need to come listen or you need to with humility maybe go get educated but yeah it is very hard to and it puts nonprofits in awkward situations as well because we are supposed to be relentlessly grateful, <laughs> even if it's old clothes, even if it's something we don't need, you know, we have, we can't offend anyone. And so it becomes a challenge um, to really bring in folks. And also folks oftentimes get a bee in their bonnet and then that that bee flies away. And so, you know, you'll get a couple weeks of, you know, investing in someone who looks like a good volunteer and then their life gets busy and they fade away. That's a common experience nonprofits have. So yeah. it is, it's a lot of, whenever we're investing our energy, I'm always just reminding people it is so precious and so whenever I'm investing energy this it's we desperately need people to to understand that means I'm pulling that away from a youth in tremendous need and I'm doing it because I believe this this is worth it but you know you just need to always be mindful of that you know like that you're nonprofits we would always just be focused on our clients if we could be
0: Right right you want to be people centered not in the job of redistributing wealth Yes <laughs> well said (laughs) I don't know I'm just guessing (laughs) Uh,
1: uh,
0: oh yeah so so the way to be involved is to be relational yes how has this work transformed you and what have been some of the big surprises
1: what injustice looks like and it feels like that like I just had no idea in in my 20s when I started this work it was way I, I mean I studied it all in college I I was a minor and you know some social injustice kind of topics. I was always have been politically active and been to protests, always read the newspaper every day. I just, I knew what injustice looked like in the big bold letters. I didn't understand. I had no clue how relentless it was and what that does to one's spirit and how, how, what it does to one's sense of space they get to take up in the world and how hard it is to just constantly get messaged that. I did not get that until I started and I feel like like every time I finally think I've gotten to a place where I think I pretty much get it, I realize no, I still totally don't get it. I, I'm protected from it, and I just don't fully get it. I mean, I have I experienced some aspects, you know, as a lesbian of of these injustices as I've grown up, you know, I, I, I know some of it, but it's nothing like what I see happening to our youth day in, day out. And it's, and there's, especially the systems that should be believing in them like their school systems sometimes the legal systems that are supposed to be protecting them from domestic violence or child abuse I'm like I could just tell so many stories and whenever I stop and tell someone the story they're just stunned that's what goes back to that listening you know like I think people have no clue like how bad it is like When domestic violence, when you go and you call the police, how bad it is, the response over Mm -hmm. and over and over again. I don't think they get how bad when you call the domestic violence shelters. They're always full. They're never available. And having space to take anyone, how hard that is to hear. Like, I don't think, you know, how quick, how hard it is to get a restraining order. I don't think people have any idea. When people come into this work, you know, it's oftentimes a, a young college student who's used to this idea that if you work hard, you get an A and i always warn them the first day you know like this is you're going to be fantastic this is hard work and you're going to work really hard and you're going to do a bunch of f's and d's this first year and it's the hardest thing in this work you are not used to failing you're not used to trying your absolute hardest and throwing all your brilliance and connection and 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 relentlessness at this and failing and it's really hard on young social workers i think that's why we have such you know they burn out many burn out it's it's hard to take that and i think I never, I would have never known until you just live into it. And um, every social worker who's really in this work has at least once or twice a year when they go home and think, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe to be a librarian. Like, just, a librarian. Uh, you know, I remember I wanted to be a biologist. Like, I mean, you just, it's right. so hard. When I wake up in the morning, I just don't know, I have the plan, but I just never know what's gonna happen, what, what has happened. And the bigger we get, that effect gets bigger because it's more outrage coming at us, more injustices coming our way that we're trying to support. The other thing that really transformed me is just, it made me a much braver person. I am a massive introvert. I was incredibly, incredibly, incredibly shy, debilitatingly shy in high school and college. If I were just living like my life for my own self, I would not have been anywhere near as brave as I am today. And then I think probably the other big surprise is how I remember when we first started, we went to this other, we we got funded and we're like, let's go look at another place that got our funding stream. And it was so big. And it had, it was like us now, it just had so many cool programs. And I was just like, I mean, I didn't even imagine we'd ever be like that, like have that depth of programming. I never, ever thought we'd be like that. And it's interesting how you just keep going, and how you just keep just even no matter what size we are, just keep going and trying to constantly question and get a little bit better at it and see what we can do to you know answer unfilled needs, you know, how that's how growth happens. Like I always thought there were like these powerhouse leaders and new powerful people. And that is for sure for some agencies their trajectory. But for us and our little grassroots agency that is very disconnected from wealth <laughs> We have found that it also works to do things in a funky kind of creative way, and and that many hands coming together has been able to to push this up the hill and, you know, bring in what we need funding wise.
0: When I think about you and and Blythe and the work you're doing and all that Wake in the Village has become, what I what I know is your determination. Yeah. And your dedication, you know, and this sort of just like, no, we're in this for the long haul. Like this may wear us out, but we're going to be worn out together. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and, and, and so to me, there's sort of like this magnification of the art form of social change and how it's slow and steady and we, and it just requires constant, constant work yet, I also know you as a person who like knows how to have fun. Like you laugh, you're joyful. You know, you' you're you're not just like super smart and serious. And so clearly, there's this depth and this hope that's alive in you. and and sure. we haven't we haven't talked about faith at all in this conversation. And and yet we have, you know, we've gone to mass together. We've prayed together over the years. Um, You've definitely been a supporter of my vocation. So it makes me really curious what discipleship is for you.
1: So I was raised Catholic, grew up in a Catholic family. I, I have long, I've been a Sunday school teacher. I am determined to change this church. And like, I, you know, I have periods when I get so angry at the church that I go over to another denomination for a while and it's some of them are very lovely like women (laughs) women are bleeding it I it it just fills my little cup and then after my cup gets full enough I need to go back and 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 be a presence and make sure we're fighting for for our catholic community because it's a huge one and it's worldwide and there's lots of kids still in it and they need people like us to be sunday school teachers and nuns and and you know like Representing right, I grew up in a generation, as did my parents, I think, where you just kind of laughed at kind of some of the absurdities of the Catholic Church. You'd be like, "Oh yeah, they're against birth control. We all take it anyway." Like that was kind of this attitude. My I grew up with anyway in my Irish Catholic circles. You know, like we just ignore the silly parts. We just ignore the ridiculous parts, and we we take from it what we want. And I think you know, and that except the dangerous extreme of that is you know, like I remember in California. Had a proposition to ban gay marriage in like 2008. My childhood church that my mom still attended was literally wrapped in signs in support of the ban, and they hired paid guards. They were using church money to pay the guards because people kept stealing the signs. You know, you know what about the gay kid that was still attending that church? You know, mm. um, and I know a lot of older Catholics thought it was dumb and still just walked by the signs. Said, "Oh, the stupid church, the silly parts." But I'm still going to go in and take my my spiritual experience. I think we need to speak up against those more. I think the people that go to the church every day, you need to call out a little bit the leadership there and push and poke at that because I do think there is like some sweet absurdities in every faith that I kind of actually love about them. That I do think we sometimes they are sometimes hurting, especially our young. And we need to we need to say something when those are when those are doing that. Discipleship, um, to me ultimately, like I grew up in a house, I went to church, like every day of Lent, we went to church every Sunday, my whole life. And to me, like, Jesus would be was held up way more than God, like we are New Testament kind of people like you know, I grew up hearing those stories. And, and to me, what rung through is Jesus as like a model to aspire to. And also Jesus as a model of what commitment looks like, what it looks like to put your money where your mouth is. You know, for me, what resonated out of all that is just like, you know, the camel through the needle of the eye kind of stuff. The, the you know, the, the taking care of the poor, the standing by the incarcerated. I mean, that just, that's what, if you ask me, like, that's everything that's at the top of my head, you know, not anything beyond that. And so when I went out into the world, By the time I was in college and even high school, what interests me is, you know, who are, it was clear to me that if Jesus was still around, he'd be a social justice warrior. He'd he'd be leading social justice movements. And so I looked for, it was interesting to me, like, what does that look like in the world today? And so even today, I'm like, I'm mostly interested in who right now are, are, are the people for us to look to and aspire to? Who right now are the models of what committed social justice work looks like? Who right now, and to me, like I'm always just trying to aspire to that. And, and, and to commit to the work of that, you know, and for me, you know, like you know, the Black Lives Matter movement right now, the Me Too movement, the queer liberation movement, the work of the First Nations rising to protect our land and one another, you know, these are movements that are just powerfully led um, by the people most impacted by the injustices, and I think it's a real model for how to set up our own communities and and to question how white supremacy still has its tentacles in the work we do and misogyny and colonizer kind of attitudes, you know, I think to me, discipleship, it's just so hard. I can't even think of Jesus in any other way, but that, and that's who I, that's who I went to.
0: Discipleship for you is what I'm hearing is, is about turning towards the most marginalized and and making them sort of the center, right. And following yep. their lead as we work for the change, that's going to, to let them have their dignity, totally, completely protected and honored. hundred percent.
1: I'm so stoked about like the social movements of today. I I'm I I find them so moving. I can't believe the last ten years and how we've moved away from this weird model of like that. You know, like yeah, I participated in those movements. It's just how everything was: white people leading stuff.
0: Okay, so Bridget, yes, all these things that you do: building the community, companioning people on the margins, advocating for justice, dealing with do-gooders who might not do the best. Yeah. <laughs> all what is, what is messy about it for you?
1: I would actually say if it is not messy, you're probably doing it wrong because if it's not messy, it either means you're not listening. You're like storming in and thinking you're leading a charge or something, or you're not reflecting deeply enough because the second you really start thinking about this work and, and, and what it means To be in solidarity and what it means to be in community it just instantly gets messy one of the things i like about all the social movements now is very much the call to not put the work on the oppressed to liberate themselves but for us to be calling out our family members to be calling out our friends to not just be like on platforms and at microphones shouting but actually relationally holding people accountable and you're struck instantly like well how far back do i hold them accountable do i hold them accountable to 1990 do I hold them accountable to 2018? Do I how, do I call out my grandma? You know, like mm-hmm. I think this just all gets messy. I think doing any kind of um, social work gets messy because there's that tension. Yeah, you know, it lives in the tensions between, say, flexibility of expect you know and expectation. Right, like uh, our program, we expect a lot of our youth actually, but we also have a massive amount of flexibility. There's this constant tension of is it right to uphold, say, a savings policy? Or is that controlling and, and and rooted in white supremacy? Like, you know, we are constantly questioning that. You know, is a curfew, is that, you know, is that adultism? Is that, you know, like we're constantly having to question and rejustify justify every policy we have in our program. And I think that's really healthy. And it's also really messy because you remember our, our long staff meetings. We still have those. And now there's 20 of us in the housing program at the table. And, you know, it, we wrestle with it and it, it's hard. Like there's lots of times us trying to figure out what is the right thing to do. But I think that's a healthy agency because we don't feel certain ever. And we just all together evoke and wonder and keep asking questions and listen to the folks impacted. You know, we have that weekly time when we're listening to our youth at the youth council and hearing from them, you know, I think that's just messy stuff. And the more that we shoulder the work of social justice and stop making the oppressed fight for their liberation, I think the messier it's going to get because we just have to go into those relationships that we have and and put those to work. I mean, to be honest, it's just what I was saying about how ending homelessness is about going into the people all around us. Ditto, changing the world. It's just that. Like, It can't just be a few heroes at a microphone. I do think it gets super messy. <laughs>
0: And also in a healthy
1: organization, you can question leadership, you can question policies that were written in 2010 or 2003. So all those things get messy. I mean, my feelings will get hurt sometimes when something I hold dear gets questioned, but it's very healthy. And I'm sure it's scary for a younger employee to question us on it, you know, all those things, it's messy, you know. And also I do agree with you that being able to laugh a lot, you know, like th- th- that's almost an acknowledgement of the messiness of all this. You know, like we laugh a lot as a team, our, the people on our staff are wickedly funny, you know, and I think that's so important because there is just this kind of crazy absurdity and, and, and just continuing to like push against these things. You know, these colonizing forces that right out of the gate of this nation, you know, wove so much injustice into our days. You know, like I, I think, you know, it's absurd and you have to laugh at it sometimes. It's messy. It's done day by day, minute by minute. You know, it's it's crazy stuff. It's, it's not neat. <laughs> That's why the college students coming out, of, you know, like I talked about those college students with the A, You know, like they don't yeah. do well if they can't accept that because they're used to those neat, you follow the syllabus kind of stuff. And it's just the world's not like that. Social justice isn't like that. And working with people isn't like that. Damn. And faith, faith isn't like it.
0: No, faith is not like that. And if we if we try to keep, have our uh, our devotion to, to our religion, to our spiritual practices, be neat and orderly, we're also going to miserably fail yep. Yep. <laughs> and encounter the beautiful mess there too. Oh, amen. Thank you so much, Bridget, for coming on uh, Messy Jesus Business and for sharing about Waking the Village and your passion and your wisdom. And you're just such a wealth of knowledge. And I feel like I could listen to you all day. I, no, I
1: love you to pieces. I I love, yeah, I just like feel such love for you right now. And this is a great thing you're doing. And thank you for keeping pulling me back into these conversations because I tend to just be running around being busy. <laughs> <laughs> and when somebody slows me down to think about stuff, it's good. It's good for me.
0: <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Well, I'm always here for you. What, what would you like to say to our listeners about how they can support Waking the Village? And and cheer, cheer you on and send you money. Well, well, you know, we always, wakingthevillage.org,
1: we always can use your dimes. Um, we, everything just goes, we have no layers in our agency. It's like me and then everybody's direct service. So uh, money is always needed for rents and, and our team and, and our youth and their work clothes and all the stuff we need and the baby's food and all that. And then that's like a huge thing. We also though, honestly, following our page and sharing our work does make a big difference because we like to tell the story of this work on our Facebook page and that gets so suppressed by like the algorithms, you know, like we like people getting that out there. You probably know this too. Like it's, it's hard. And then when we reach those people, it's so meaningful and so much, so much magic can happen. Yeah. I always like getting connected to folks and and finding out like where those might lead.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Bridget. All right. Have a good one. invite you to join me in this contemplative moment. Whereas my conversation with Bridget Alexander explored the stereotypes that people who are struggling with homelessness deal with and the value of the Christian church being in solidarity with various social movements, I thought I would read for you an excerpt from Pope Francis's recent book called Let Us Dream, The Path to a Better Future. A reading from Pope Francis, Let Us Dream. On the margins, I have discovered so many social movements with roots in parishes or schools that bring people together to make them become protagonists of their own histories, to set in motion dynamics that smacked of dignity. Taking life as it comes, they do not sit around resigned or complaining, but come together to convert injustice into new possibilities. I call them social poets. In mobilizing for change, in their search for dignity, I see a source of moral energy, a reserve of civic passion, capable of revitalizing our democracy and reorienting the economy. It was precisely here that the church was born, in the margins of the cross where so many of the crucified are found. If the church disowns the poor, she ceases to be the church of Jesus. She falls back on the old temptation to become a moral or intellectual elite. There is only one word for the church that becomes a stranger to the poor, scandal, the road to the geographic and existential margins, is the route of the incarnation. God chose the peripheries as the place to reveal, in Jesus, his saving action in history. That's it for this episode of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced and hosted by me, Sister Julia Walsh, and edited by Cherish Bedzinski. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.